Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. It's Sunday, January 21st. Each week, we'll feature a look back at highlights and top stories from the week, and a preview of what's to come in the week ahead, followed by a deep dive analysis on key issues and companies in the distressed and high yield space. This week, we'll review the top bankruptcy filings for all of 2017 with an in-depth discussion from our Reorg First Day team on the common dip financing trends and changes we saw in Chapter 11 filings during the year. We'll also hear from our financial analysts covering two distressed makeup companies saddled with large amounts of debt on their balance sheet, Revlon and Avon. The week was off to a brisk start with a late-night bankruptcy filing from Exco Resources on Monday in the Southern District of Texas. The oil and natural gas producer with assets in the Haynesville and Eagle Ford said that through its filing, it aims to restructure its finances, which includes $1.4 billion of debt spread across various secured and unsecured tranches. The company remains in discussions with stakeholders around alternative actions, including including a potential sale of its assets. Exco also continues to investigate potential claims and causes of action against various third parties, including former directors appointed by secured creditors, as well as claims arising from the debtor's pre-petition refinancing transactions. At the first day hearing on Thursday afternoon, Judge Isker approved the debtor's interim request for dip financing for a total of $180 million, the final dip financing for a total of $250 million on a final basis, will be provided by J.P. Morgan, in addition to Fairfax and Bluescape, which, combined, own over two-thirds of Exco's secured debt. Prior to the hearing, Cross Sound, represented by Quinn Emanuel, filed an objection to the dip. Cross Sound, who describes itself as the largest non-insider unsecured note holder, said that it owns approximately 30% of outstanding unsecured notes. On Thursday, Exco moved to reject certain midstream contracts, and a hearing on that motion is scheduled for late February. Frontier Communications announced plans to relax covenants on some of its senior bank debt to afford the company, quote, greater flexibility in executing on operational initiatives and in optimizing its access to the debt markets. The company is looking to amend its first lien term loan administered by J.P. Morgan to replace the total leverage covenants with new first lien net leverage covenants. In a statement sent to Reorg prior to a call with creditors, Frontier said it launched the amendment to proactively accomplish two things. First, the amendment would modify Frontier's financial covenant from a net total leverage to a net first lien leverage test, the company said. And second, the amendment would permit the company to issue junior lien debt. Frontier's management has indicated that near-term maturities over the next few years are, quote, manageable, but that being said, the company's maturities step up increasingly in 2021 when the company has $2.6 billion of debt come due, and again in 2022 when $2.7 billion comes due. Frontier is scheduled to announce its fourth quarter earnings, followed by a conference call on February 27th. 
Back in court, the Brightburn Energy Partners bankruptcy case continued into its third day of a contested confirmation hearing. The valuation dispute took center stage at the hearing, which featured live testimony from valuation experts for the equity committee and the debtors. The equity committee is the primary objector to Brightburn's confirmation, while the debtors, the second lien group, the ad hoc note holder groups, and the unsecured creditors committee all support court approval of the plan. The valuation gap between groups remains large, with the debtor's investment banker, Lazard, asserting a $1.6 billion enterprise value, and the equity committee's consultant, Barchin, claiming the company is worth $3.8 billion. Judge Stuart Bernstein scheduled the next hearing date for Monday, January 22nd at 10 a.m., so be on the lookout to see if the debtor's confirmation will go beyond a fourth hearing date. Meanwhile, in the Westinghouse bankruptcy case, Judge Michael Wiles granted the debtor's motion to approve certain protections to Brookfield after the no-shop provision was modified to allow the debtors more flexibility in considering other possible offers. At the hearing, counsel for the key stakeholders, including the Baupost Consortium that recently acquired Toshiba's claims against Westinghouse, they all voiced their support for the transaction. And at the conclusion of the hearing, the debtors laid out their proposed confirmation timeline, indicating that Westinghouse expects to file a plan and disclosure statement by January 29th. The tentative schedule also sets a March 27th confirmation hearing date. And in the continuing Hovnanian situation, Solis Asset Management started the week with a small victory when U.S. Magistrate Barbara Moses granted limited document discovery in the case. The parties will be required to produce documents related to Solis and GSO's positions in the Hovnanian-related securities and derivatives. The discovery also includes documents related to communications between GSO and Hovnanian, communications between Solis and the media related to the refinancing of Havnanian's debt, and all term sheets produced or received by Havnanian in 2017 that relates to the refinancing of certain notes. Meanwhile, Havnanian presses on with its attempted exchange and consent solicitation. The company received consents from 2024 holders, but the company announced it would double the consent fee for 2022 holders and extend the deadline. At a hearing before Judge Laura Swain, Hovnanian counsel Simpson Thatcher maintained that there is, quote, nothing illegal about the proposed refinancing transaction, and that analysts and commentators agree it is, quote, allowed in the ISDA contract world. A former ISDA representative warned that the GSO Hovnanian transaction provides a template for the manufacture of failure to pay events that artificially maximize credit default swap settlements. A preliminary injunction hearing is scheduled for Thursday morning, January 25th. Reorg also put out a tear sheet on Revlon, the makeup company with nearly $3 billion of debt. Revlon sales, which have declined for each of the last six quarters after backing out revenue contributions from Elizabeth Arden, are declining against a backdrop of industry growth. Unsecured notes are indicated in the low 60s. We'll hear more from two of our financial analysts on the situation later in the episode, along with a comparison to another high-yield beauty company, Avon Products. 
Our top read stories of the week were one, Exco Resources filing for chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas, two, Frontier launching its covenant amendment, and three, Hovnanian, the Solus GSO order to produce documents showing Hovnanian holdings. And now, I'll pass it over to our reporter in Houston, James Holloway, for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Catherine, I thank you for that most edifying remembrance of things past, and I know our listeners do as well. And now on to the week ahead. Monday, January 22nd, the participants in the Brightburn cases will file into Judge Bernstein's courtroom in New York for a fourth day of confirmation hearings as the pesky issue of valuation just won't seem to go away. Lazard's Douglas Fordyce testified last week that the Equity Committee's analysis inflated TEV by over $1 billion. The committee is expected to respond, and we will be live blogging. Tuesday, January 23rd, brings a continuation of the confirmation hearing for Panda Temple Power before Judge Silverstein in Delaware. The debtors last week filed a further amended plan containing third-party releases agreed upon at the first day of hearings. Also on Tuesday, a hearing in Toys R Us related to the U.S. trustee's objection to the retailer's motion to pay consideration to landlords. On Thursday, January 25th, existential threats or the lack thereof to the credit default swaps market will take place as Hovnanian and Solus Alternative Asset Management face off in a preliminary injunction hearing. A declaration by former ISDA head Robert Pickle on behalf of Solus asserts that the complex series of transactions contemplated by the home builder and GSO will undermine the CDS market and provide a template for CDS buyers to manufacture failure-to-pay events and structure loans to artificially maximize settlement amounts. Hovnanian's counsel has said that no, this is not the case at all, and the carefully negotiated transaction is neither illegal nor improper. Thursday also brings the confirmation for Gander Mountain. Numerous trade creditors and company executives last week objected to the camping gear company's plan to defer payment on reclamation and administrative claims. And if you need a break from all this, dial into the earnings call for Cleveland Cliffs. Even if taconite pellets are not your life's abiding passion, CEO Lorenzo Goncalves, who brought the company back from the brink of Chapter 11, knows how to make these things both informative and extremely entertaining. And on Friday, the forbearance agreement between Duanton Stores, its ABL lenders, and an ad hoc group of secondly note holders expires unless extended. And that's all I can shake from the Magic 8 Ball. Back to you, Catherine in New York. This past week, Reorg put out a tear sheet on Revlon Consumer Products, a global beauty company that's dealing with a continued sales decline in the U.S., Stephen Opper, a member of our financial analyst team, sat down with Nick Williams, our financial analyst covering Revlon, along with Yash Chanduru, who picked up coverage of high-yield name Avon Products to compare and contrast the two companies. Thank you. My name is Stephen Opper, and I'm here with Nick and Yash, uh, and we're going to discuss Revlon and Avon, two companies that they have both looked at uh, fairly extensively. Now, both of these companies compete in the cosmetics industry, um, which is, has been growing, uh, yet these companies have faced uh, some headwinds, and we're here to talk about those headwinds and discuss what might be driving them. Um, so, Nick, I, I know you focused on Revlon. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about that company? For sure. Let's jump right in. So, so very quickly, the, the Revlon capital structure is about $3 billion in debt, $2 billion of secured debt with the term loaned around seventy-five and about a billion of unsecured debt with uh, some notes, short, near-dated notes in mid-'70s and longer-dated in the-'60s. So two things very high-level that, that I think are important 
as we get get into this a little bit. The first is Revlon. About this time last year, uh, September 2016, completed its acquisition of Elizabeth Arden. So it bought that portfolio of brands for about a billion dollars. And something to watch out for is kind of, you know, how is the progress going as far as kind of integrating those brands into the Revlon platform, uh, you know, pulling out, pulling out some costs there. Then the second thing that, you know, we really want to focus on is Revlon's core product, I should say, which is selling cosmetics into kind of the mass retail segment in North America. So that's, you know, selling into the Walmarts, Targets, CVSs of the world. That business has really been declining. So year over year in their most recent quarter, I think that business was down 25%. I'm trying to figure out, you know, how they may, may or may not be able to kind of stem the bleeding and maybe what some of the factors are that are causing that uh, is something we want to want to focus on. Sure. That makes that makes sense. Clearly, those those figures that you pointed are, are not not uh, going the right direction uh, compared to the, the rest of the industry, <laughs> which is interesting because, Yash, Avon has a, a distinctly different business model. Um, and that company is also facing pressure. So mm-hmm. just curious about you know what they're doing and how they operate, if you could talk about that. Yeah, sure thing. And, you know, kind of on the surface, they seem like they're about the same company. You know, they sell beauty products. But if you take a step deeper, they are relatively different business models, as Stephen alluded to. Avon, rather than, you know, selling through the retail channel, they sell most of their products, the vast majority, through the direct selling channel. So what this means is that they have about 6 million active representatives who sell direct to consumer rather than most of their product competitors who sell through the retail channel. And while the company has a a bit of a physical presence and a bit online, they don't really do much in the way of quantifying that presence. But, you know, you can assume that the vast majority is through the direct selling channel. And in terms of their capital structure, they have almost $2 billion in debt. And their secured notes, about $500 million at par. They have unsecured debt due in March of next year, which is also near par. But then they have unsecured notes in the 70s due in 2043. Gotcha. And so, you know, both these companies, you know, you know, you've now discussed uh, their various business models and alluded to some industry dynamics that have been impacting both of them. Uh, you know, what are, what are we seeing here and what's driving this market share loss um, and, and the difficulties that these, these companies are seeing? The, the way I would start very briefly is just kind of giving people a, a little bit of a, an overview of, of maybe how we want to uh, think about the, the cosmetic market generally. So you can kind of break it into uh, uh, brands that sell in the prestige channel and brands that sell into the uh, mass retail channel. And that's about a 40-60 split, 40% prestige, 60% mass. But Revlon, and I think it's fair to say Avon, uh, really generally have focused their attentions on this mass channel rather, yeah, than, rather, than, uh, rather than being in the, in the uh, you know, higher-end uh, stores. And what, what I think is interesting to us is the kind of step-up in competition that you've seen to, uh, in Revlon's case, kind of get shelf space in the Walmarts, the CVSs. So Walmart is about 17% of, of Revlon's sales. But the company and management have kind of talked a little bit about the fact that they're seeing more and more competition to actually have the shelf space they've historically had in a Walmart, for instance. And that's a lot of that is uh, a trend that we're seeing. And I think that a lot of people are talking about right now, 
which is consumers are coming, becoming more and more conscious and more and more identify themselves with a particular and maybe niche brand, whereas before they were more comfortable with a, with a you know, more kind of mass market brand. And it, I don't know if that's something that, that you feel is a similar issue for Avon, or maybe there are, other, there are other things that are going on behind the scenes with Avon. Yeah, I think that definitely applies not only to Avon, but across many industries. Uh, I think you can see that as a general dynamic just in the marketplace today. But what's interesting for Avon is that on top of that, actually they say even before they compete for the customer, they say that they compete for entrepreneurial talent by way of these active representatives. So Avon describes the representatives in combination with monthly brochures that they send out as the store through which they sell their products. So what that means is that they, you know, in the markets that they operate, they have to provide their representatives essentially a, an ec- economically viable opportunity and a compelling reason for them to come be independent contractors for Avon. I think you told me Avon sold their U.S. business, so this is really an international an international issue for them. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So in um, March of 2016, Avon uh, effectuated a transaction with Cerberus, in which they sold 80 percent of the North America business to Cerberus in exchange for a 170 million dollar investment in the North American spinoff as well as a $435 million investment that Cerberus made into the Legacy Avon. So Legacy Avon, while it does retain a 20% stake in the North America business, the large portion of its profits are all international. And what's interesting there is it relies now pretty heavily on their South Latin America segment, which is essentially just South America. And that made up about 40% of their 2016 revenue And specifically, Brazil made up about half of that, or 20%. What's been interesting is that, as I mentioned, you know, these representatives are kind of equivalent to a storefront, if you will. And over the past four quarters, their active representatives in South America have been decreasing. As a matter of fact, I think in six of the eight past quarters, it's been uh, a downward trend. Wow. So it's kind of like here, your storefronts are just walking away from the job, essentially. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Clearly, they need those to sell their products to, to all the various end consumers, so that can't be a good sign. I guess um, you know you have you mentioned that these two companies are, are facing increased competition from from new brands, and I'm assuming that's a, a reason, a partial reason why Revlon purchased Elizabeth Arden. Um, I mean, I guess what else separates these brands? Or what's their competitive edge with these uh, these various brands that they're looking to, I guess, expose or, or continue? So, yeah, it, it's fascinating. So uh, something we haven't touched on yet, first of all, that I think kind of plays into this story is, you know, we talked about the prestige channel and the mass channel, but there's also been this rise of the specialty cosmetics retailer. And, and when we talk about that, what really jumps out, uh, the, two, the two names that jump out to us for Avon, Sephora has this huge international presence on the, on the you know, specialty retail cosmetics side. And then within the U.S., Ulta is actually a big up-and-coming player. Ulta's revenue has jumped from $2 billion, give or take, in 2012 to, I think, almost $5 billion, uh, in the oh. most recent year. And when, when you say specialty stores, are you, you're, you're referring to stores that, that specialize only on selling these cosmetics and, and beauty products? Exactly. So, so, you know, whereas before, you know, your 
you're either Neiman Marcus and you have you know one little part of that, or you're Walmart and you have one little part of that right. dedicated to cosmetics. If you walk into an Ulta, it's wall-to-wall -wall, uh, beauty products. Right. And to give you an, a sense of the scope of this, Ulta says it has 20,000 products on offer across its about 1,000 U.S. stores, wow. across 500 different brands. Wow. And I mean, you know, I think Avon has basically, Avon is, 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 is it, right, as far as their brand portfolio. Yeah, I mean, that's... They have a, a few more, like a new and uh, skin so soft, but you can really just count them on your hands. Right. Certainly not 500. And, and as you alluded to, um, Revlon, Revlon is similar, right? So, so they have the, the core Revlon brand and a brand called Ame, and then they have a number of new brands that they've kind of tried to bring onto their platform through the Elizabeth Arden acquisition, but they're still... You know, they're competing with players who are just kind of popping up left and right. And part of that, I think, maybe is, you know, there's a little bit of an online trend there as well as far as advertising is concerned. Right. Well, I'm sure the online presence is something they could develop even further. And it's interesting because clearly, you know, the, the fact that those specialty stores can, uh, can hold so many different brands um, along with the fact that, as you mentioned, like localized and smaller brands are right. becoming more popular um, is something that, that's probably difficult or I assume is difficult for single brands like Revlon and Avon to, to combat. Totally. So, very interesting. We'll, we'll keep watching these two companies going forward. Thank you both for joining. Yeah. Now back to uh, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Now, we'll turn it over to legal analyst Teresa Lee, who is with the Reorg First Day team, to discuss some of the bankruptcy trends that First Day wrote about in all of 2017. The team is here to provide their insights on the retail bust, the impact of governmental regulation, and dip financing developments. Here today from the Reorg First Day team are Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Reorg First Day provides timely alerts and expert analysis of new Chapter 11 filings with liabilities of over $10 million. First Day recently issued a yearly review of Chapter 11 filings in 2017, with a number of insights into the distressed and bankruptcy space. The First Day team is here with me today to discuss some of the things they saw last year. Jessica and Ian, it's great to have you here with me today. Thanks, Teresa. Great to be here. So, Rurik First Day is on the front lines of Chapter 11. You're watching bankruptcy unfold in real time across the many different industries and sectors of the American economy. Can you tell us about your major lessons learned from 2017? Sure. The past year, um, as always, had filings across many industries, but there was an increase in retail filings. All types of retailers filed, from sporting goods to teen fashion, and the biggest, which was Toys R Us. The retail filings were largely attributed to the modernization of consumer shopping habits, moving from brick-and-mortar shopping to online shopping. But it wasn't limited just to retailers, as even paper manufacturers and newspapers pointed to the move to e-commerce as at least part of the reason for their filings. Many debtors also blame government regulations and policies as hampering their businesses. Companies blaming stringent regulations were found in the airline, healthcare, energy, transportation, and metals industries. Another trend for the year that we saw was a large amount of prepackaged or pre-negotiated cases where more than half of the debtors reporting more than $1 billion in liabilities were pre-packs or pre-negotiated. So in the aggregate, what's the amount of debt and liabilities that filed for Chapter 11 in 2017, and what are some of the biggest cases that filed for bankruptcy? For the cases that Reorg First Day covers, those reporting at least $10 million in liabilities, there was over $80 billion in cumulative debt for the year. 
The largest cases, reporting more than $10 billion in liabilities, were Cedril, Avaya, and Takata. Cases with debt of at least $1 billion included other energy cases like Cedril, Expro, Tidewater, Vanguard, and Bonanza Creek, as well as retailers like Toys R Us, Jimboree, Route 21, and Payless Shoes. Other billion-dollar cases include Global A&T Electronics, 21st Century Oncology, and Ecobat, which began as an involuntary case. Cases that had less than $1 billion in liabilities but also resonated were Westinghouse Electric Company, whose technology is installed in about half of the world's commercial nuclear reactors, the J.G. Wentworth Company, and many well-known brands such as Perfumania and True Religion. So how does that compare to 2016? There were about a quarter fewer debtors reporting more than $1 billion in liabilities in 2017 as compared to 2016. But if you exclude oil and gas cases, the number of billion-dollar cases was almost even year over year. The big story of 2016 was energy cases, as oil and gas companies were struggling because of the drop in oil prices. But the drop-off in 2017 was offset by the influx of retail cases. So if 2016 was the year of the E&P oil and gas bust, then 2017 was the year of the retail downturn. Can you tell us about some of the common trends you saw in the retail sector? Well, the retail filings kept up all year, and October was the only month the entire year without one. Um, The companies generally blamed the decline in foot traffic, as well as the prevalence of Amazon and other online retailers. Expensive leases were also a problem for some of these companies. Though some of the retailers attempted to restructure, many closed their doors and liquidated their remaining inventory. But there were also a number of these companies looking to sell their assets, like Eastern Outfitters, Gander Mountain, and Gordman Stores. With the holiday season approaching towards the end of the year, some companies also sought to capitalize on Black Friday. Plus-size retailer Fashion to Figure even receives approval for a very quick eight-day sales process. Um, There are also some repeat filers this year, including Eastern Outfitters, Wet Seal, and Radio Shack that all file Chapter 22s. Now, retail wasn't the only hard-hit industry in 2017. What are some of the other sectors that experienced a bust in 2017? Trucking companies also took a hit, with a bunch filing over the summer. For the most part, they blamed declining freight prices and a shortage of qualified drivers. But another issue facing the industry is a legal question of whether the leasing of independent contractors' cars disqualifies them as independent contractors and requires classification as employees. Similarly, in the passenger transportation space, some taxi companies filed because of the intrusion of Uber and other ride-sharing companies, which lowered the value of New York City taxi medallions that historically been in very high demand. A bunch of restaurants started filing as the year progressed with one of the most high-profile being Joe's Crab Shack and also Romano's Macaroni Grill. The debtors primarily blamed shifts in consumer preferences and a trend among younger customers for experience-driven restaurants. Grocers also face a competitive industry and issues from the emergence of mega-retailers as Marsh Supermarkets and Central Grocers filed. Now, something else you noticed is that a number of companies voiced concerns about government regulations and spending policies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Companies from a multitude of industries lamented adverse impacts resulting from government policies, or in some cases, the lack thereof, including healthcare, coal, oil and gas, alternative energy, taxis, and metals. The healthcare story is nothing new, as we first reported on the matter when St. Michael's Medical Center filed Chapter 11 in August 2015. The company filed against the backdrop of waning reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid in a population heavily reliant on both. Since then, about 15 hospital operators have filed echoing similar concerns. 
rural hospital operators in particular have felt the effects of depressed reimbursements. One example is Acadiana Management, which operates 12 hospitals across the Midwest and Southwest and blamed the filing on severe Medicaid and Medicare cuts as a result of stricter criteria for coverage eligibility. There was also JLM Financial Healthcare, which operates nine nursing homes in parts of Illinois where it said 95% of patients depend on Medicaid. And in Okanoo Regional Health's case, the company noted that rural hospitals in Georgia are closing and suffering financial losses at historical rates due to various factors beyond their control, including increasing uninsured patient volumes and decreasing government assistance. 21st Century Oncology, the largest healthcare case of 2017, also noted a changing political landscape that has instilled uncertainty into the health insurance market, along with the industry's highly regulated nature at both the federal and state level. It's also worth noting that healthcare chapter 11 cases fell around 70% from the first half of the year to the second. Now, you also mentioned that some energy companies had been affected. Coal and oil and gas energy companies say they've been adversely impacted by environmental regulations and stricter enforcement of existing laws in some cases. Also, companies on the power production side of energy, primarily those providing electricity through coal and natural gas-fired power plants, also voice concerns over environmental regulation, as well as companies in the metal industry, with some noting significantly reduced foundry operations and significant environmental remediation liabilities. Solar companies also expressed some desperation for the U.S. to impose trade protections for domestic solar cell producers, who the debtors say are hindered by companies in countries like China that are dumping solar cell products into the U.S. at below market rates. ET Solar said companies like itself have been left to play a waiting game until the U.S. government decides whether to accept certain recommendations made by the International Trade Commission on Solar Trade Tariffs. Taxi companies, as mentioned before, also face restrictions on medallions that they say allow rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft to compete with them at an unfair advantage. So now I want to turn to the First Aid Database, which is a comprehensive database of all the cases over $10 million that have filed for bankruptcy since 2012. Can you tell me a little bit about what that database is showing you? The database is great because it allows us to take more of a snapshot view of the cases and compare them on various timelines to identify the busiest monster to determine whether the cases are increasing or decreasing for different industries or locales. What we saw was that the top three filing districts for two years running were Delaware, the SDNY, and the Southern District of Texas. Consumer discretionary cases generally dominated Delaware and in Central California. Um, while the SDNY had financials as the most common sector, which also includes real estate filings. The Southern District of Texas, as historically has been the case, was led by the energy cases. We also saw that healthcare cases decreased significantly after the first half of the year, and the cases in the healthcare sector were dominated by the South and the East Coast. And we also know that nearly half of cases that filed in the state of Florida were in the financials and the real estate sector. Another development we found interesting is that Vermont was the only state without a Chapter 11 filing for the year. So the database also allows us to track counsel, advisors, judges, and dip financing terms, as well as assets and liabilities. For the liabilities, we found that the largest proportion of cases were in the $10 million to $50 million range, topping out at 63%, followed by 15% of the cases falling in the $100 million to $500 million of debt, and then 11% of the cases with $50 million to $100 million of debt. Not surprisingly, the cases with the largest amount of reported debt were smaller as a proportion of total cases, with cases over $1 billion at 6% and at over $10 billion at just 1%. 
One of the things you mentioned is included in the database is a compilation of dip financings for each of those cases. What are some of the major insights you have about dip financing trends? So over 100 companies filed motions to obtain dip financing in 2017, including around 25 in the fourth quarter. The average interest rate during the fourth quarter was approximately 8%, while the highest rate over the period was 12%. Approximately 44% of the cases in the consumer discretionary sector involved post-petition financing requests, while in healthcare it was around 42%, in the industrial sector it was around 37%, in energy it was about 30 and in the material sector, 29. For the financial sector, it was only about 7%. Very interesting. Thank you, Jessica and Ian, for that comprehensive and insightful overview of the 2017 restructuring space. We look forward to keeping an eye on the trends in 2018 with Reorg First Day. Thanks, Teresa. Just a note, all references to bond prices in this podcast come from Trace or ADI. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.